Oh my god. <laughs> Nucky. Is everybody ready? I guess yeah. <laughs> now I feel like the anticipation uh, for me to say, what up, what up, what up? <laughs> we are back. Back at it again with the Best Seed Podcast. Welcome back, beautiful people. Yes, I am your hostess with the mostest, Johnny B, and this is our second season of Best Concordia. And we are so excited to be back, continuing our ethnographic adventure and bringing you fascinating interviews with some of the brightest creative minds here at Concordia University. Once again, we're coming to you live from the Ethnography Lab here at the Milia Speck Life Research Cluster on the 10th floor of the EV building. <gasps> Shout out to them. Hey, guys. And I'm also here in the studio joined by my fabulous co-hosts and Marie Turcotte, co-host and Marie Turcotte. Actually, more of a sidekick, I would say. More of my... Uh, Andy Richter to my Conan O'Brien, the uh, Ed McMahon to my Johnny Carson, and Marie is going to be sitting with me on the couch because actually we've got new digs this year. We've got two beautiful couches. It really is kind of a late night setup here in the Ethnography Lab. So Anne Marie is going to be joining me, and she will be uh, supporting me mm-hmm. in my interviewing process. And with us, as always, we've got Chris Millet, old Cottonmouth, although. Today Today, hey. you are cotton-free and cotton speaking free. clearly, and <laughs> we are so happy to be here. This year, we're going to be catching up with some of our friends who were featured on the first season of Best Concordia. We'll be hearing how things turned out for the trucking group, the Cabot Square Photo Voice Collection Collective, as well as meeting a whole new cast of characters, really a global cast, in fact. We've got people from California, Germany, Denmark, and Bolivia. Uh, you can also look forward to some amazing music on the podcast, and this season We'll be featuring many interviews with some of these musical geniuses, so stay tuned for that. So much fun stuff planned for you guys, because TBH, we missed you. So stay tuned, because all that is coming up this season. Uh, But first, today's episode, which we are titling Layers Upon Layers, is all about framing and reframing. From examining our social world through plants and fiction with Alejandro Maley and Morse, to framing fieldwork through material objects and games with the trekking group, and backed by the sweet, sweet sounds of musical gurus, Perv Club, we are going to be looking at how a small change, a layering, if you will, can open up a kaleidoscope of possibilities. So, first up, I spoke with incoming anthropology master student and brand new Best Concordia production team member, Alejandra Melian Morse, about her trajectory from growing up in Spain to working on an elephant sanctuary in Thailand to winding up at the Concordia University Greenhouse. So now we're here with um, Alejandra Melian Morse. Yes, that's it. Um, who's one of our new podcast teammates. We've had some additions to the team this year, which is awesome. We're expanding our team. And so Alejandra is helping us out with uh, all things podcasty. Um, and you are a master's student here. Yeah, first year's master's student in anthropology. In anthropology. And you did your undergrad in anthropology too. I did. In the department. But you're not from Montreal. No, I'm not. That's kind of a complicated story. I was born in Spain originally in the Canary Islands, yeah. um, but my mom was American, and so my 
dad and mom decided to move back to the States when I was about three. So I grew okay. up in the U.S., um, but a lot of my family still lives in Spain, and I go back there a lot. Okay. But after I finished high school, I did a year abroad um, mm -hmm. before starting university and decided I did not want to go back to the U.S. Okay. <laughs> for many, many reasons. Where did you go abroad? Um, I did some time volunteering in Thailand first on an elephant rescue project, which was great. Oh, my God. Did you get to... Hang out with baby elephants? Yeah, I did. It was amazing. Because pretty much what they need is... Uh, the project was called the CERN Project. Okay. And they have... Um, they pay the owners of the elephants the same salary that they would receive in the circus. But in, instead of sending the elephants to the circus, they have them join our program. Because oh. if you just buy the elephants, then you create a market. And then they're just capturing more elephants from the wild. Right. So you just support the owners in a different way. Okay. But then the problem was that now they have all these elephants in this program. So the volunteer's <laughs> job is literally to just play with them and oh to hang out. Oh, my God. And it was great. Yeah. Dream job. It was the dream job. Yeah. That's amazing. For sure. So that was the whole, like, you did that for a whole year? Not the full year. Okay. Um, yeah, about <laughs> like, a little less than half. I feel like you could do that for a whole year. I but. would be happy to do that for a year, <laughs> but then I went to Madrid um, to work in my Spanish. I was teaching English and taking some drawing classes there. And, uh, okay. Yeah. And then you were like, no more states, no more U.S. Yeah, I was like, wow, there are so many options in this world that I didn't hear about at all in my high school experience. Right. So, and Montreal, I'm from Connecticut, and Montreal. Montreal is oh, okay. six hours drive away, so it's yeah. still close enough. Uh, I see my family regularly, but far enough away, too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> to have a little bit of distance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to spread your wings a little bit. Yeah. Did you know people when you moved here? Yeah, I did. One of a close family friend um, actually went to Concordia, too. Okay. Um, He's from Connecticut as well. I don't know why he ended up here, but yeah. I came to visit and kind of fell in love with the city and nice. decided it was perfect. And so you did your undergrad in anthropology, mm -hmm. and now you're in grad school. So was there like a moment in your undergrad where you were like, I need to go on and do more? Yes. Probably <laughs> my post-humanism class that I took with mm -hmm. Craig Hetherington mm -hmm. kind of showed me how many different directions anthropology could go. Because mm. beforehand it had seemed like a pretty, like I pretty much understood what was going on there. But then after taking this class, I realized that I knew nothing and that there were so many directions cool. that I could explore. And that I didn't, it didn't have to be so anthropocentric. Um, yeah. And just about, you know, people, which I love people, but I also am really, I'm a serious environmentalist and there's a lot of different ways that I want to look in the world, at the world and ecosystems. And so when I realized I could still do anthropology and connect it to all of that, I decided it was something I wanted to do. Amazing. Did you do any like undergrad, like thesis projects or anything like that? Yeah, I did an honors. So yeah. I did my um, honors thesis on the Concordia Greenhouse. Oh, cool. Yeah, and I looked a lot on about learning and yeah. um, learning from other species, and I looked at the way that the interns in the um, the seedling internship were learning from the plants the that plants. they were growing. Cool. Yeah. And this is on the 12th floor of the hall building, yeah. right? Exactly. I love it up there. That was it's like so one of nice. the first like lovely spots in Concordia that I found when I came here. Yeah, it was amazing because I got to do my field work all winter in the nicest place on campus, in my opinion. Cool. So what was the, what, so your thesis was about sort of like learning from plants, basically. Yeah. yeah, and learning processes between people, but also between species. So I was looking at how the interns were learning from each other, from the program coordinator, and from the plants. Cool. 
Oh my God. I did. So when I came here for this like uh, ethnography and design workshop that they were doing a few weeks ago, there's this woman, uh, Desiree, she's uh, German, but she's in New York um, studying and uh, her work is about like tiny changes in the atmosphere that can affect our emotional life. I hope I'm not screwing this up, but plants too. And she's looking at plants also. I actually, I need to hook you guys up. I would love that. Yeah. yeah. And so, okay, so you did the plants and the uh, learning from plants in the greenhouse and then now your first year master's student. Yeah. Hanging out, doing yeah. stuff. And what is your master's project going to be about? Well, it's kind of similar. I'm still going to be looking at learning and um, ecosystems, mm -hmm. um, but I'm really interested in childhood. Um, I couldn't do anything with childhood for my my honors because undergrads and children don't right. really go very well right. together. Uh, um, but now hopefully I'll get ethical approval to be working with kids in nature programs and like forest kindergartens. And I want to look at the way that they, I, the way that they identify in their environment mm -hmm. and how they see themselves in relation to the other species in their environment and how the teachers in those programs kind of foster a certain identity in relation to other species as well. Do you have any like hunches about how that relationship is built or like what you're going to find or are you kind of just open to... Well, I'm trying to stay open. <laughs> I'm trying not to cut, like go into with too much of an idea. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that the way that the language that they use is going to be very important. I know, mm -hmm. you know, the nature culture dichotomy is classic in mm -hmm. anthropology and that's reinforced a lot in, in nature schools. Right. Like you, the, just the name a nature school is kind of reinforcing that. Like you, usually you are in society, but right now you are in nature. Right. And I think that that way that the children understand um, their relationship with the world is kind of a little bit problematic because they think that only when we're here do we need to take care of nature mm. and take care of the environment when really in the city as well that's their environment that's right. just a different type of environment yes so I want to be looking at that dichotomy a little bit I don't want to get too lost in that because there's a lot there and a lot has already been done there yeah. I want to use it as sort of a basis but hopefully not get too so there <laughs> too is buried. work around this in anthropology and anthropology already. Yeah, not so much with um, nature kindergartens, okay. um, but in general with like the nature right, culture. Right, the like, nature culture dichotomy that you're talking about. Yeah. Do you have any like nature schools that you're familiar with that you're thinking about? I was a camp counselor this past summer at a camp called Coyote Camp. It's, um, it's in Quebec and they do, um, they do the camp, but they also do a weekly program where the kids go once a week and are learning all these nature skills and survival skills in the forest. Okay. So I'd be interested in doing that, but I'm also looking um, at going to New Mexico. Um, I there, can't remember the name of the program that I, I'm really interested in right now, um, but it's I find that one really interesting just because I can talk a lot about the mythology of the American West, because mm. a lot of the way that people understand the West of the United States is from stories, right. and I'd like to see how the actual interaction with the the space and the environment in New Mexico compares to what the kids already know about like the American mm. West and the whole I don't know it is a mythology mm -hmm. you know? absolutely yeah. and then do you like are you kind of looking at like how like that nature school potentially sort of like perpetuates that mythology or is it more just sort of like what people are bringing to the school to begin with yeah um 
I'm not really sure yet. I think I'd like to see how they use that, if they use it and how they use that mythology yeah. to teach about where the kids are. Mm -hmm. um, but I am more interested in the like physical interactions and relationships. Yeah. But I don't, I feel like it would be impossible to separate that history and mythology from the interactions. Totally. But Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then you get to go to New Mexico. Yeah, which would be great. <laughs> yeah, okay. Have you been there before? I've been to Arizona, but not New Mexico, okay. but I've heard really amazing things. It would be summer that I would be doing my field Ooh. work, so it would be very hot. Super but hot. I'm, okay. I'm good in the heat, so it's okay. Okay, perfect. <laughs> yeah. And then we were talking a little bit earlier before we started this impromptu interview about um, your writer and a a fiction writer, short stories and yeah. poetry. You tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, I've always really loved storytelling. I thought when I was little that I wanted to be an actress, mm. but it turned out that I don't actually like performing. <laughs> um, I don't like being in front of people. I don't. I have trouble actually performing in that way. And I realized what I liked about acting was the storytelling part, mm -hmm. and that I could just tell the stories instead of having to perform them. Um, and I, I find it's kind of a form of therapy for me. I figure out my truths and I figure out the way that I'm looking at the world through the stories that I write. Um, Have you ever written a script? I've never written a script, no. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe you should. Maybe I should, it. you're right, yeah. Um, I would love that. But. Who are some of your favorite authors? Um, I really love um, Murakami, because mm -hmm. I really, I love strange stories, and I really like um, magical realism, because. Mm -hmm. When I was young, I liked fantasy a lot, but now I want to be more in the real world, but I still love this magical element to the real world and just adding these moments of, of magic to the everyday. So I really mm -hmm. like that. And I tried to model a lot of my stories off of, of him a little bit. Okay, cool. Yeah. Are you a Harry Potter fan? Yes. I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. <laughs> of course. I have Me too. recently accepted the fact that I'm a Hufflepuff and I'm okay Me with too. that. <laughs> We're in the same Harry Potter house. You That's know, amazing. You get a bad rap. But it's I know. Good you know what? I also had difficulty accepting it at first. I was like, Hufflepuffs. Like, they don't do anything cool in the book. Like, it's like herbology, right? Yeah. But I'm kind of like, you know, I, I've made my peace with it. Yeah. Also, my patroness is a hedgehog. Oh. Which is like also kind of like not the coolest <laughs> but a really sweet cute. yeah and apparently yeah. they're like scrappy and tough so I was like okay. okay I can you could do that have you ever done that quiz on the Pottermore I, yeah I did but I don't remember what mine was <laughs> <laughs> I've done all the Pottermore quizzes yeah yeah Same. oh my god I love it but okay so back to our like scientific podcast here. Uh, <laughs> So, but so you're a writer. Have you? Are, do you publish? Have you published some stuff, or like, um, you just not write for yourself? Really, I am actually the next, uh, the next issue of Soliloquies. I'm going to have a piece in there, Great. which is cool. It's not fiction. It's based on. It's a based on real life. It's based yeah. on my experience. Um, my mom dying actually, so I don't oh, want to okay. get it too dark. Yeah, but yeah. but it's good. And I mean, that's why I write is to work through these things and Absolutely. to work through my life. So yeah. Well, that's the value of art. Yeah. Right? Exactly. So. Um, and so, as because uh, we were talking about this a little bit earlier too, so I'm kind of like leading you in this direction. But are yeah. you going to be able to sort of like weave some of your fiction writing or poetry writing into your work as a grad student? Yeah, I hope so. I'm very passionate about the fact that anthropology and all social sciences should be accessible. And I think that fiction is a really wonderful way to make these things mm -hmm. accessible. And even if it's not fiction, just approaching the way that you're telling 
you're talking about your research in a storytelling way, even totally if it agree. isn't, if it's not fictionalized, if it's just told in a narrative form, mm -hmm. it's a lot easier for people to follow. And ethnography in particular, it makes so much sense to tell it as a story. Yeah. You're literally living a story when you're yeah. doing your field work. You're living your own story and your experiences with the people you're, you're studying with. Um, yeah, our relationships in a way that people are interesting enough for people to want to <laughs> engage so. with. Yeah, I yeah. hope so. <laughs> I, yeah. I hope so too. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Alejandro, we're super jazzed to have you on board. It's been great. I'm so um, excited. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.
That was Eternal Way by this week's musical guest, Perv Club. Now, Perv Club is fronted by two mysterious beings from the planet Perv, Shagal Starkiller and Sigur Klaia. Shagal's flying saucer touched down here in the Ethno Lab, and I had a chance to talk to Shagal about Perv Club and the band's mysterious origins. Actually, at the beginning, we didn't know each other. And, uh, well, there are actually two stories, uh, two Perf Club stories, the official and the unofficial. Ah, lay them both on me. Yeah, well, the official story is that uh, we're two aliens Mm -hmm. from uh, the Perf planet, Mm -hmm. you know. (laughs) And uh, the first time we landed in Earth was in the 80s, so that's when we got into new wave and right. stuff. Yeah. And well, now we're back, uh-huh. and uh, we're bringing this, uh, this music back too. Nice. But with a lot of uh, content, uh, a lot of lyric content, yes. because we need, to, we need to give a message to humanity. Now it's more important than ever before, you know. Absolutely. To take care of their planets and uh, take care of each other and all that stuff. I love it. <laughs> a message of love. Yeah, love and uh, maybe it's more than love is a message of understanding that we're part of a major thing that's the universe. And, mm-hmm. and we need to stop being selfish and we need to stop being uh, worried about differences and all that stuff. And maybe... Uh, come together as a, a whole planet, you know. I can get behind this message. Yeah. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, that's the official story. Okay. So, uh, whenever you're asked about Perf Club, this is a story you need to tell. All right. <laughs> we will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the unofficial story is the, it's us being humans, uh-huh. you know. <laughs> and, well, we met at a very... Uh, Weird time of our lives when we were all, all we were both thinking of um, uh, quitting music, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, be normal adults, find a job, and all normal stuff. human adults. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, when we when we first met with Sigur, we started talking a lot of of music and all the stuff that we love and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he told me, hey, I want to, before I, I quit music, I want to make an, an EP. Would you help me with that? And of course. And you helped me to produce my own EP. And like, we're even, and that's it, you know? Yeah. And when we started working on his EP, he had already some tunes in a very, uh, with a very new wave sound. Okay. And so uh, we started working on that. And then the result was really good. It's actually the first EP that we released. And uh, we decided that we should go on because, you know, there was a really good chemistry between us as musicians. And actually, when you're a duo, you know, Mm -hmm. it's much more easier to take decisions because you don't have to discuss with a a whole band and uh, all that stuff. (laughs) Chris is nodding in the corner. (laughs) He knows nothing about that. (laughs) Crying in the corner. Yeah. (laughs) Now, the difficult part is... uh, uh, the live performance, you know, mm-hmm. because uh, as you've uh, uh, listened to our tunes, we have a lot of instrumentation, a lot of different instruments, drums, yeah. uh, uh, you know, st- strings, uh, 
wins and all that stuff. And so how do we play life? We haven't played life yet right. because we really would like to make a big, huge performance, not only music, but maybe even uh, dance uh, mm -hmm. performance. And, and we'll, we're still thinking on that. So figuring you know, out the logistics of that. But in the meantime, we like to think of ourselves as music producers. Mm -hmm. you know? We compose and we produce. And so what we have been doing uh, so far is that we... Uh, invite other musicians, singers, uh, interpreters, you know, to play for in our records. Right. And uh, kind of what Daft Punk did with their last album. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we actually uh, kind of, uh, we're not copying, you know, what <laughs> Daft Punk does, but we kind of uh, like to emulate their job because I think that's yes. a very amazing, uh, very cool uh, way of doing music, you know. In the fact that Sigur and Chagall never show their faces mm -hmm. to the public. Mm -hmm. We never do public interviews. We never uh, post pictures of ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, we might, we, we want to keep a low profile. So it's the music and not the persons behind the right. music that is uh, acknowledged, there. you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and that's actually what we've been doing so far. We have released two more EPs. We have an album coming uh, out. We don't know when yet. <laughs> but, uh, well, as soon as I um, I can land again in the same uh, yes, spot as on Earth. Yes, spaceship comes back to Earth. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because now I'm a kind of a recognition mission uh, uh, in other places. Right. On Earth. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and but so if people want to find your music, where do they go to find? Well, we club? are in almost <laughs> all streaming services. Great. Spotify, uh, iTunes, Google Play, Deezer, YouTube, of course. Bandcamp. Facebook, you can find us as Perf Club, a okay. single word. Uh, Bandcamp also. I mean, everywhere you can find us as Perf Club, a single word. P-E-R-V-E-R-V. C L U B. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. And actually, Perf Club is a very 80s name, you know, with the yeah. Breakfast Club Perfect or. Like uh, the Mod Club. Yes. The, or the Mud Club in New York was a, a sort of a new wave. Yes. Um, alternative club in the 80s. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. Were there some other 80s clubs? I feel like that was like a, a total thing in the 80s was to yeah. call yourself something club. Something club, Yeah, yes. Roxy Music Club. Yes, That was course. another one, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Club Kids. Club Kids, yeah. yeah, that was a thing that started in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, cool. Um, and we will link to all of this stuff on our Best Concordia Facebook page. Oh, It'll be you. on yeah, the great. Ethnolab page, so we will make sure to spread the word of Perv Club and yes. the journey of Shagal and remind me of your Sigur. Sigur. Yeah. Nice. Well, thank you, Shagal, for coming to talk to us about your music. Oh.
That was Encounter One by Perv Club. And up next, we are going to catch up with one of our most talked about interviews from last season. And by most talked about, I mean my mother was like, did that trucking group ever find their women truckers? Love you, mom. So... They are back, the Trucking Research Group, which was one of the first working groups here in the Ethnolab, and they did find some truckers to talk to, and PhD student Gabriel Lavenir is back and joined this season by fellow trucking group member and sociology master's student Carmen Lamoth to tell us all about how the group's research has progressed. So, it started a bit... Um Strangely, because we didn't s- constitute the group around the, the idea of researching trucking, mm-hmm. we were at the inaugural meeting of the ethnography lab, and we ended up being a group. And then we thought, okay, what could we be working about that isn't about one of our research subjects, something completely different? Um, so we ended up looking at trucking, and specifically gender in trucking. Um, Then we spent quite a lot of time discussing methods, ethics, the different ways of doing ethnography because we came from different backgrounds. Then we were really explorative, is that a word? Yeah. Mm -hmm. In in the way we did things, we ended up staying at truck stops and then trying to find ways to get through to women who work in trucking, which was the really hard part. And then we got three interviews. Yeah. Um, three interviews. Yeah. Okay. Classic, open-ended, lengthy interviews. Mm-hmm. Every time two of us were doing the interviews, and we added a twist um, at the end, uh, object-oriented methods. Right. So do you want to talk about it? Because you did the Lisbon presentation, so I'm more up-to-date. Yeah, first of all, I want to talk about, we we were pretty creative in our methods from the beginning of the project. I think it wasn't just with the object-oriented storytelling. It was even with our, I thought, with our methods um, to get um, yeah. women truckers or to locate our, our subjects was quite creative. I mean, I'm just going to give an example, if I may. Sure. Um, <laughs> I think you know where I'm going with that. <laughs> we... we um, Adam made these posters, these great posters. Oh, yes. Yeah. (laughs) You know where I'm going now, don't you? (laughs) And we were, at first we were sitting in Tim Hortons with our posters and our coffee and our Timbits trying to get people to come over and talk to us (laughs) because it was near a truck stop. It wasn't really working out. Uh, and we were, we were a little bit nervous of putting too much on the table and getting kicked out. So we went to the truck stop and we were thinking, well, how are we going to set up without them telling us, well, move along, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we had all these posters and we had information where we were trying to get people to talk to us. I don't know how we came up on that. We, we pinned one of the posters to Gabrielle's front. Oh. <laughs> so we made her like a walking poster. You're like a poster, uh, yeah, a billboard, a uh, walking. And we had this idea she would just sit there and people would notice her and notice her side. <laughs> You're right, we were quite creative. We uh-huh, were creative. That's, that's inventive, <laughs> yeah. I would say. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Was that a successful approach? I can't even... Remember, I was we so were traumatized. Too hard. <laughs> the we had fun. <laughs> yeah, we did have fun. The observation was great. Mm-hmm. It certainly shifted the way people behaved in the truck stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, but I think one of the most successful um, 
practice we had to get people to, to call us uh, was stopping in random truck-related places and asking the people who uh, manned the desk if we could staple uh, posters, including in some a really remote trucking station uh, where we met with a very, very nice lady behind the counter and then a really enthusiastic trucker just outside the compound. And we talked for like 15 minutes, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so we kept having these encounters along the way that weren't formally within our research, but mm -hmm. we kept meeting people and, and um, reframing our work when discussing it with people. Okay. So it was... Um, I'm looking for a proper word, but a dynamic approach. There was a dynamic, and also I think because we went out to the field as a group, as a team in one car, and we we hung out for the day, and we kind of spurred each other on, I think, with that yeah. energy. And, and so I think by yourself, I, I know for me, by myself, I may not have approached um, some kind of a somebody in the parking lot of a trucking stop and, and asked them all these questions, but we had more of a... Uh, confidence, as it, I did anyway, as a team, and we, we were backing each other up and, and somewhat egging each other on, yeah. you know, yeah. And people were responsive to they you They were, guys. yeah, and I think they could feel that energy too. Yeah. yeah. And it was a really difficult thing to negotiate because we were looking, looking for entry in a field that is really gendered and quite isolated. Mm -hmm. um, it's... Well, by definition, it's people, when they work, you can't really get to them because they're locked in a car on a highway. Right. So you can't really go and knock on the door of an office. It doesn't work like that. And being a group made it that much easier and more comfortable. And I guess we were less threatening because we wanted specifically to talk to women yeah. in a very gendered context. So if it had been one, we would have looked like perverts individually, <laughs> but as a group, it was somewhat more convincing that, yeah, we were doing research. Mm -hmm. yeah. And were there lots of women that you encountered in the field? No, we found most of the women online. We went to, Adam and I went to a conference, a trucking conference, and walked around and talked to people there and talked to trucking companies and got the names of some women bloggers, women activists, and through that, we started okay, so locating women. There is kind of a women. public discourse there already is. happening around mm -hmm. this. And they really wanted to talk to us. They were yeah. Once we found those women, they were really looking for an avenue to get their message out. Amazing. Yeah. And, so, and you found three women. So who, who were, did these women wind up being? Can you say a little bit about them? Well, obviously we can't talk about yeah, them could. individually, sure, me, but sure. uh, they were local truckers uh, in the Montreal area. We found some other ones across Canada, but we we couldn't, we didn't have the means to go and interview them. It was yeah. a little bit far for us. Um, At least one of them we met through an old-time friend of one person in the lab. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so that was, and the thing is, um, I wasn't sure who I was talking to for a while because her and her partner were both women working in trucking. Mm -hmm. And I, for a while, I didn't know if I was talking to that person in the lab's friend or her partner. Or her partner. So I was like <laughs> super, like I didn't know what level of proximity I had with her by knowing someone in common. 
So yeah, that that was a, a kind of a complicated avenue, <laughs> but it was super fruitful because I think she was the one person among our, our interviewees yeah. who wasn't into the public promotion of women in trucking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then we had two other women who mm -hmm. were more in that circuit because there is a uh, public estate effort to get more women into trucking, so of course they have spokeswomen. Right, because there's an active push to recruit women into mm -hmm. the trucking industry. I remember that from the last interview. So how come this one participant was not on board with that? Well, it's not that she wasn't on board, but she wasn't institutionally okay, I see what you mean. engaged in it. Right. But she was. She had the same approach to women in trucking, really. Yeah. Um, the same. The same discourse about it being something that had been considered male for a very long time, but mm -hmm. didn't have to be. Yep. Something where there was a, a stringent need in drivers, so there was employment if you were ready to take the couple month long course. Uh, that, that, those were the themes, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and there was the theme of taking your home on the road with you. That was common with all of, all of them as well. <coughs> This idea of the cabin becoming your home space and doing your cooking in the cabin. and So maybe this is a good time then to talk about the method, the object-oriented storytelling, because that was, the cabin was something that was being floated around as maybe a focus of the method. So maybe you could just describe the method for me, object-oriented storytelling. Ooze, we could call it for short. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be oost? Oost. <laughs> Object-oriented storytelling. Yeah, oost. Oost. <laughs> <laughs> so what is object-oriented storytelling? Uh, well, we asked them to bring, in, in our email before the interview, we asked them to bring two objects with them to the interview that we didn't specify, we didn't even give examples. We just wanted to leave it up to them what objects they were bringing. And we also asked them to bring a photograph of the cabin or of something that was important to them with their, with their career, with the truck. And I think, I mean, it, it worked out well. I think we could, we could all tell when we did the interviews, when we started the interview and we started asking questions, there was this back and forth that you usually get with it. Well, I, I had never done interviews, so that was new to me anyway. Yeah. But I could really sense when the objects came out on the table, the change in the dynamic of the interview. It, it became um, more centered on the women trucker. Mm -hmm. And they, at that point, you could feel like they were taking more charge of the interview and, and they felt like they were more the expert on their subject. And, they really perked up when they were talking about the, the, the objects I found. And that was just the, the dynamic was changed yeah. with that. That's very true, because one of the difficulties sorry, uh, <laughs> with that is that since they know they're at the heart of a push to get more women to enter the trucking mm -hmm. industry, we spent a lot of time in those interviews hearing the same discourse we already knew. Right. And it was hard to get to how is your everyday life when you work because we kind of got stuck at the beginning, which right. makes sense, on yeah. why women should try and get work in trucking. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Um, and going from the what people should do to what I actually do, mm-hmm. the objects really helped in, in doing that leap. Mm-hmm. Um, one interviewee, when we met, we said hello, and she got the objects out of her bag immediately. And we, we like pushed it back to the end of the interview so yeah. that we could have more contacts. But she was really, like, there was an enthusiasm, like, oh, that's so good. I, I want to talk to you about right. those. And something probably that is not part of the, the discourse that's happening around that, too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would be excited to talk about that, too, probably. <laughs> and so what were, can you talk a little bit about the objects? Were they just pictures of the cab and significant parts of the cab or... Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think each of our each of our subjects, if you call them subjects, each of the, each of the women were had a different idea of what kind of objects to bring, and they each brought something completely different than the other ones. So mm-hmm. one of them w- seemed to be more related to the trucks. So something called a tire thumper, which looks like a bat, which when you first look at it, it's a little bit scary. <clears throat> and uh, and she brought. Uh, a vest, a safety vest, and some gloves, uh, man-sized gloves, and like man-sized gloves, bigger, right. and then smaller gloves that were more fitted to her her hands. Whereas uh, another woman brought more sentimental-seeming things, things that were hanging in her vision in the cab, like a, a crystal from a friend, mm-hmm. um, a little waving cat. So she was talking more about the missing her friends on the road and, and how these objects helped her remind her of, of her friendships back home. Mm-hmm. Neat. Yeah. And then when you were here the last time, um, we talked about, uh, what did we say? I, it was, uh, Cheda was talking about the, using this method as a way of linking discourse to materiality. Um, I wonder if you can <laughs> remind me what she meant by that. And then do you think that the, the method was successful in being able to bridge those two things? Um, I would... Um, I guess we all interpret that, that sentiment differently, mm-hmm. but it was quite visible that there was a shift in the discourse when it was applied to the objects. Mm-hmm. For example, presenting the trucking world as something to aspire to, something exclusively positive, mm-hmm. was somewhat um, amended when there was one of the women who brought a very sentimental object that had to do with um, someone close having an accident as a trucker. Mm-hmm. So then we got to talk about accidents on the road, danger, the difficult relationship with cars, yeah. four-wheelers. Um, so it, it brought complexity and nuance to the discourse, which by definition had to be super, like, a beat and enthusiastic. Right. Yes, and I think that we had talked about bridging the discourse with materiality, but I also think we, we talked a lot about replacing the discourse with the materiality, and I think the objects helped us get past, as, as Gabrielle said, get past that discourse that they all seem to have and into their own stories. 
Right, mm-hmm. right. And I think that, that's, that, that shift that you were getting at too, right, between the first part of the interview where you're talking about mm-hmm. sort of the things everybody talks about into the objects themselves. Cool. So there's a, a successful inventive method in a sense. <laughs> yes. That's amazing. Um, was that, uh, were there any surprises? Like maybe that was a surprise or did anything else surprise you over the course of doing the field work? Hmm. It was all new for me, from the actual subject of trucking, because I didn't know anything about trucking, to ethnography itself. I had only done discourse analysis. I was I had never done interviews with people, so that was new to me. Um, I had never really... I'd worked in teams before, but never a wonderful team, successful team like we had. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Yay, team. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing for you, Gavrielle. I, I had some experience with ethnography, but indeed not as a collective work. And that was a really nice discovery. Uh-huh. And when it comes to the subject itself, uh, it wasn't really a discovery, but a reminder that people, like you, you said, they're not really subjects. Like you, you see them being experts mm-hmm. and knowledgeable about how they talk about themselves, how they frame their work and their life. And I guess it's one of the thrills you get from ethnography, seeing that people are like super smart. Right. And really aware of their social surroundings, the networks, the structures. Um, so that wasn't a surprise, but it was so a cool useful to... reminder that we need to get as scientists to not get all caught up in people, humans, as tiny cogs in a really big machine. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but the cogs are quite smart about how the machine works. Right, right. And then, okay, and then with ethnography, so we talked a little bit the last time, and I was a big jerk, and I asked you guys to define ethnography for me. <laughs> <laughs> and ethnography is this thing that kind of, like, evades definition. It's kind of an elusive thing. So I'm going to ask you another sort of, like, jerky question. <laughs> but how, in, this, in this project, you've done the field work now, what did ethnography look like doing this project? Hmm. Well, I think as Gabrielle was saying, it allowed us to understand the culture of women truckers through women truckers. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a culture that I didn't know anything about, but the ethnography was a tool that allowed us to understand that culture better. Mm-hmm. Especially in contrast with all the, the fact that most of the sources are policy sources, mm-hmm. so really not focused on people's experiences, or biographical writings, which are interesting but leave no room for comparison. And often they come from a specific time and place that's quite remote. Mm-hmm. So we really felt like it brought something to the table that wasn't really available. Right. But, yeah. Yeah. Sounds like, too, like your recruitment process and the the four of you going out as a team, I mean, that sounds to me like an ethnographic exercise where you were going to truck stops and going to trucking companies and immersing yourself in that world. Is that fair for me to say? Yeah. We We had to learn about the world a little bit before we stepped in and talked to women truckers Mm -hmm. so we were watching vlogs 
about women truckers or truckers. Just we were just trying to not not get the lingo so much, but understand where they were coming from. And Marie, do you have a question? Yes, I do. <laughs> I was wondering if you had uh, the chance to investigate a little bit about uh, and look at the literature addressing women getting into trucking, and if you found because maybe it's quite a new phenomenon and. Uh, Sounds like I'm, I'm really not an expert in the issue that trucking is less lucrative than it used to be and if there is some sort of uh, relation with women accepting lesser conditions and uh, if there's a relation, recruitment of women and men may be leaving the profession or if, if there's literature addressing uh, this aspect of uh, if you looked into that or... well it didn't come through during the interviews no. but yeah. yeah but that's interesting because that wasn't framed that way it was framed as liberating because women were invited in a profession mm -hmm. that was close to them before yeah. but you are right it's one of those traits of feminizing professions that when the conditions degrade and the pay is lower then women are both more welcome and more susceptible to come in. And this was mediated by the fact that companies now tend to offer things that are construed as perks for women, like short distance trucking, the guarantee that you're gonna be home at five to get the kids, stuff like this. But it comes with the, okay, we're giving you perks, so, you get less money. Plus, often there is the fact that they are they have less experience, less seniority. Everything that you can find about the wage gap is just very Fair. well illustrated by but that. But women, uh, it didn't come true in the interview, though. Women... No, did it? The only perk that they talked, that two of them talked about, was that they could travel with their husbands or with their partners mm -hmm. okay. in the cab and trade off on the driving. So this was, instead of leaving your partner, you could now... It's, it's better for the trucking company because the truck stays moving 24 hours. Yeah. But they could take their home on the road and have them both travel together. That seemed like a perk for both of them, really. Mm -hmm. yeah. It was presented as a, as a everybody wins yes. scenario, but from, the, from a like, sorry, capitalist point of view, it's, mm -hmm. it's perfect because you respect the law and you have more workers more productive workers. Um, you can count off each like, self-regulating because when you're not alone, you're more careful. Mm -hmm. One of them mentioned how uh, they each held the other accountable. Have you checked this? Have you checked that? Mm -hmm. I'm gonna recheck it because you haven't like checked it on the list and everything. So, Like the truckers who were like traveling with somebody else yeah. have that other person to be accountable for the state of the truck and they for can't the safety They can say, like, stuff. I assume it's going to be okay. Right. There's always one who's going to be like, no, 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 we, we have to be, like, follow the rules. Yeah. So from the boss's point of view, that's perfect. And it's, it's experienced as an advantage. Mm -hmm. Right. For the women who do. And the other person is not getting paid. They're just given the so-called privilege of being on the road, and which is a privilege in a sense. Because well, they're both getting paid. They're both truckers. Well, they both are getting paid. Yeah, oh, and, okay. and, uh, and one large trucking company here in particular, that was their method of getting more drivers, more women drivers, mm -hmm. was to advertise through the men that if they had partners 
that were interested in it, in, in, in doing this as a profession, they could come in and they could offer them partner routes. Okay. So two of them actually got into it that way. One, their partner had already been a, a driver, and they came into it through the company that offered them mm -hmm. training and this opportunity to travel with their partner. And then the distinction between work and home, which already doesn't really hold generally, right. yeah. is completely blurred. You do like formal labor, emotional labor, care. Um, you make sure everybody gets to eat and sleep. Uh, it's like a tiny microcosm of capitalist labor yeah. in, a, in a truck cabin. Yeah, right. It's you know, striking. Mm -hmm. Did anybody um, articulate that blurring of the workspace and the home space? Did they talk about yeah, that? Yeah, I think most of them did. Mm -hmm. There was one we were talking to. She was quite proud of the space that she made for herself in her cabin. She had pulled out the top bunk because she was with her partner. She put shelves in. She had a, a slow cooker, a toaster, oh, wow. or a toaster oven. Um, she was. She had recipes that she was following. She made a birthday cake for her partner on the road when it was his birthday. Yeah. She was. She had her knitting in one drawer. She, she was really proud of that, making that space feel like a, a home. Yeah. Like a tiny home. Those yeah. Tiny homes. That's really cool, actually. <laughs> I would have. Did you guys get to? So did they bring pictures in? Did you get to see? A the couple space? of them brought pictures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We didn't go into. I, during the trucking conference, the trucking shows we walked into. Trucks, 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 yeah, but not not the the ones that we were interviewing. We didn't we didn't walk into okay. their own space. Cool. Yeah, yeah, that would have been good though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we also talked uh, talked a little bit in the ethnography lab around uh, emotional entanglements. And when we talked to you the first time, you were saying, I think I can't remember if it was Gabriela Cheda, but we were talking about. Um, doing the ethics, and you guys had hit some roadblocks with the ethics back then, and we were talking about risk to participants, and that risk to participants was, was pretty low on this, um, on this project. But so were there any sort of emotional entanglements that came up? You, you mentioned talking about accidents yeah. on the road. I bet that was probably a pretty emotionally fraught conversation because that's pretty scary stuff, really. Anything that you can think of? That conversation, for sure, you felt like you were missing a script, mm -hmm. um, which was probably good, because having a script in those contexts is just not a good way to go about having emotions. Yeah. But um, that, that was a hard moment. When it comes to emotions that are less intense, but also kind of complicated to handle, one of them was that we were talking with women who had a specific notion of womanhood. Mm -hmm. um, and they had to rework it to fit the tracking world. But we, we talked about what women want, what women do, what women are like, what's natural, what isn't. And often we weren't seeing eye to eye, which is normal in any conversation, mm -hmm. but it was we, we had to articulate it with uh, some distance. We weren't supposed to contradict people who were kind enough to tell us about this. Right. But that, for me, was some kind of an emotional entanglement because in any non-ethnographic discussion, I would have jumped on the opportunity to discuss what a woman is, right. what women are, yes. what's natural and what isn't. And I couldn't there. 
So I guess that would count as one for me. Mm -hmm. I think the other emotional situation that came up with two of them was that this the beginning of of this transition between their partner of being on the road and away from them to them both being in the cabin together in a small space 24 hours a day and there was a little bit of an well quite a bit of an adjustment period both of them talked about uh, as far as yeah, they had to work through what it, what it was going to be like, both of them being on the road. And one had to trust the other one enough to sleep in the back while the other one was driving and not say, hey, look out for the... Right, right, you know, backseat driving, literally yeah. backseat driving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there was, both of them had that adjustment period before they settled into being able to work, not only be a partner at, at home, but also a working partner. Right. And what that meant, that, that transition, yeah, the dynamic. Mm. Yeah. Cool. And so this group, this um, trucking group, is um, something that's uh, uh, happening in addition to all of your other myriad projects and theses and PhDs and all that stuff. Yes. Um, but did the group, working in this group, um, at, in, inspire or have an effect on the other work that you're doing? For me, it was very energizing. Mm -hmm. And I had never done interviews. I'm looking at now possibly incorporating that into my future projects because I have more confidence with that. Yeah. But this whole space in the ethnography lab was very supportive with this trying trying new methods and, and trying things and failing and being okay with that and, and learning from other people's projects. That was really great for me. It was a, it was a great year. I, I, I stumbled into it not expecting anything really and I just got a lot out of it that way and, and uh, I really went back to my own work with a lot more energy because I'm, I'm working by myself, I'm not interviewing people, it's, it's, it's online mm -hmm. um, ideas and yeah. it's, a, it's a great experience for me that way. It is the very cool thing about the Ethnography Lab is mm -hmm. that it is a really inspiring space and a space where I think, I don't know, it feels very free to me where, yeah, where people mm -hmm. can... Mm -hmm experiment like you're saying and it sounds like you guys were successful with your experimentation also mm -hmm. which is like bonus <laughs> it worked talk about the, uh, talk about the, oh adam's giving us some ideas for what we should talk about yeah. the poetry poetry I, I, I wasn't really i didn't know how to slide that in there but we, <laughs> we also have a, a creative way that we disseminated the information okay, at the end so it doesn't end there but wait there's more <laughs> So we we took this these uh, stories that that are that are what are we telling them that the women were were, were telling us uh, about and we used them as inspiration to create this twine game which is an interactive open ended kind of like an adventure game where you choose your own ending mm -hmm. and you, we, we plug the objects into this game. We're, this is still ongoing. It's not a finished project yet. Okay. But in, in writing that, the, the, the description of, of the objects, we, we didn't go necessarily from the, our, our, we, didn't, we didn't take them word for word. We just used it as a, as a springboard for this what turned out to be fictional writing of the game. So we, uh, I don't really know how to talk about that. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, um, 
Here, come here, Adam. Yeah. Adam's Mono. Oh. Yeah, because it was I'll really, it was I'll another John's, interesting. Uh, um, <laughs> I'll get, no, there we go, okay. Um, what, we, what we did was we, we found that we needed to talk about these objects in a certain way, and we just didn't have interviews that discussed the issues that are coming up. And uh, so for the game, so we actually sat down, Carmen and I were putting the presentation together, and, was, and she goes, well, we don't know. And I go, you're right, we don't know, so what do we do? And I said, well, uh, and then I disagreed, well, let's just do a word association. So we took a sort of critical term from each of these objects, because they, they, they had an emotional resonance for their owners, the people that, that we interviewed. And so one thing was, for example, the crystal, the term serenity constantly appeared. So I wrote down serenity. I looked at Carmen, she looked at me like, what? And I go, <laughs> Serenity, why does it make you, and she, and she, and we just went back and forth like this, then, because I said serenity first, Carmen then took serenity and made the object speak about serenity in relationship to the per, the person, and then we went back and forth along this with each word using that to generate a sentence, and then we had this kind of little prose poems developed out of each of these, which sort of, and it sounds, I mean, it sounds um, possibly... Uh, it's interesting when you use the, the term fiction, because fiction, fiction literally means to make. Mm -hmm. And uh, Clifford Geertz, the anthropologist, says everything is fiction. Every ethnography, every paper, it's a fiction. It's made. It's not, it is something of it. And so we just went with this. But it was interesting because when we finished this, these little structures, um, they really did feel consonant with the interviews and with the objects. And so we, we did that and we kind of took turns of present, of the, reading these as part of our presentation and we're going to figure out how to incorporate it. But it was interesting to use, a, use essentially a literary, a very literary device mm -hmm. to develop a data. That's so cool. Oh my God. <laughs> That's brilliant. That, so you yeah, that, like, so came up with another inventive method yeah. on top of the first one. But where can we access this? Yeah. Well, yeah, when it's finished, it'll, it'll be posted online. Where well, were you well, presenting it initially? We presented the prose part of it mm -hmm. at the Lisbon, uh, at the oh, Colleagues hey. Conference as part of our, our presentation on right. our, our project. And we did get people coming up afterwards and saying, yeah, that was quite poetic. And, and it was really, it was a great uh, process to go. It, the, the process was really interesting, but also the surprising thing, as Adam was saying, was the, the product at the end seemed quite appropriate and, 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 and really summed up these objects in a way that um, was different than a paper writing a paper about it. Or, yeah. Wow, I love that. Yeah. That's really cool. And did your, have your participants seen these poems about... No, but they will get a copy of or, or a link to the, the mm -hmm. Twine game when we're done. That would be um, such an, uh, I would think, a nice thing to get mm -hmm. at the end of a project like that, yeah. like a personalized Ex sort of... Accessible too, right? Yeah. More than a, maybe a, a journal article or... Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh my god! Episode 1, Season 2, you guys! We did it! And I gotta say, I think we've set up Season 2 to be a real winner. We've framed it really well, uh, uh, right? 
Uh, special thanks to this week's guests, Alejandra Melian-Morse, Gabrielle Lavnir, Carmen Lamotte, and our incredible musical guests, Chagall and Sigur from Perv Club. Also, shout-outs to the Speculative Life Research Cluster, the Milieu Institute, and, of course, our loves at the Ethnography Lab, all here at Concordia University in Montreal. Make sure you stay tuned this season because we've got more fresh content coming up. So, until next time, best Concordia. I know, I'm going to come with you, though, because I need a... I need to go for a walk. Like, I will let you buy me a coffee. Oh, oh was that super mean? What? I don't think anything mean happened. Oh, okay, because your face was...